Well, good morning again. Thanks for joining us. Would you uh, turn in your Bibles with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 10? We're going to be in Ecclesiastes 10, <clears throat> verses 1 through 11 this morning. Ecclesiastes 10, 1 through 11, and we are so privileged. I was just, I've been thinking about this quite a bit this week, just um, both to have the opportunity to worship together, but also to study God's Word together. And um, so this morning we're in Ecclesiastes 10. Many of you know um, that for the last nine weeks, actually, we've been in a series in the book of Ecclesiastes. And next week will be our 10th week. Uh, Dan's preaching out of Ecclesiastes 11, hitting the topic of joy. And then the final week is coming in two weeks of the Ecclesiastes series. And in our series, uh, Solomon, who's the writer of Ecclesiastes, has been expounding on some really sobering news. We've called it sobering news this whole time, but his basic message to you and me is that life is meaningless under the sun, or life has no ultimate meaning if all we do is all that we do and then we die. Now, if you are just joining us this morning for the first time, that can sound fairly dramatic and kind of drastic, and you might be wondering, what kind of church is this? Um, I understand why you would feel that way, but what Solomon has been attempting to do in this book is to force us to think about something that we guard ourselves from thinking about ever. So Solomon is saying to you and to me, as we study this book, look carefully at what life would be like if the only purpose of life was what you have under the sun. Look carefully at what life would be like without God in it. Solomon's goal for us is to know this, that life without God, life without a real saving knowledge and relationship with God and from God is actually empty. It's meaningless, it's vain, it makes no sense, it is for no end or purpose, there is no sense to it at all. And if you look at our culture, what you see is people who are experiencing life without any meaning, and so they just take it the next step every day. And the reason that we have taken so much time in this book is because it's good for us to feel the force of that truth that life without God is meaningless. Solomon wants you and I to think hard about what you think about life and how you are living life. And <clears throat> so today, we're going to be in chapter 10. And the last couple of weeks of this study, we focused exclusively on wisdom and what is godly wisdom. We've asked this question, what is godly wisdom and how do I live it in this world? And so a couple of weeks ago, we looked at the wisdom of God and the providence of God, meaning that God knows what he's doing. He's above it all and he's in charge. And then we looked at practical ways that you and I can step into godly wisdom in our lives. And then today we get to chapter 10. And if you read ahead at all, or if you were to read ahead, you may be scratching your head and you might even be asking this question, is, has Solomon blown a gasket? Um, what, what are we talking about here? What does chapter 10 have to do with what we've been talking about for the last nine chapters in Ecclesiastes? And suddenly, Solomon seems to be giving us a list of what seems very unhinged or unassociated proverbs. They don't really work with each other. 
Suddenly, Solomon seems to be sort of not making any sense. And so, what should we do with chapter 10? How does it fit with his argument for life under the sun? How does it fit with wisdom and seeing God in our lives? And the first thing I think that we, I want to tell you is that Solomon has not suffered from a blown gasket in chapter 10. He can sometimes be really non-linear in his thinking, and though today's chapter might seem like a rambling set of unconnected proverbs, what Solomon is doing is he's actually providing for us a meditation on folly or foolishness. He's giving us proverbs on what it looks like to be a fool, and all of this chapter really factors into his argument from chapter 1 that life is meaningless without God, and because and the reason it factors in is that the fool looks at life the wrong way, and the wise man looks at life through the lens of a world that has been created by the living God. And so today's passage points us in the same direction that all of them do. Interestingly, in chapter 10 of Ecclesiastes, Solomon uses this word fool, or some variation of it, nine times. In Solomon's three books in the Bible, he wrote Proverbs, he wrote Ecclesiastes, and he wrote Song of Solomon, which is our next sermon series. Haha, <laughs> just kidding, I'm never touching that. Um, that's, you, you guys can read that on your own. But in those books, those three books, he uses the word fool, fools, foolish, and folly a staggering 128 times. And so you might be able to say that Solomon at minimum can at least identify what a fool looks like. And so today's passage is really another passage in which Solomon is writing to help us behave with wisdom instead of foolishness by helping us identify what a biblical fool is, it, it is, again, a very overwhelmingly practical chapter. It's going to just feel, I'm going to ask you questions today that are just very practical, and hopefully you can use them in your life. And throughout this chapter, Solomon is urging his readers, which includes us, to resist folly and to embrace godly wisdom. With that, let's jump into the beginning of Ecclesiastes 10 with verse 1, where Solomon starts by making his case against folly or against foolishness. He essentially says this, a little folly can do a lot of damage. Look at verse 1, it says this, dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench, so a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. So this illustration that Solomon uses, it would have been immediately understood by the people in his day. Perfume in his day was like, it was more like a body oil than an aerosol or a mist like we would use in our day. And it only took one small fly in that oil to spoil the entire fragrance. And here Solomon says, in the same way, it does not take much folly to outweigh wisdom and honor. It doesn't take much folly to outweigh wisdom and honor. Solomon says to us, don't underestimate folly in your own life. Essentially, he's saying a small mistake, as unfair as it might feel to you, can mess up a very wonderful thing. Think about this for a moment with me. We can apply it to our own lives very quickly, but you could have built a reputation in your life for many, many years. Over a period of 20 or 30 years, you could have built a wonderful reputation. You could be known for being wise and honorable and a good citizen. And then in a moment, one moment of foolishness, you can mar that reputation forever. 
A mentor of mine used to say often that we are only one choice away from total ruin. It's what Solomon is actually saying here in verse 1 about folly. To begin his case against it, he's saying a tiny amount of folly, just a little amount, can destroy a family. It can ruin a reputation. It can bring heartache into a marriage. What Solomon is saying in the opening verses of chapter 10 is really just an illustration of the, uh, the way in which we ended our study last week in chapter 9. Maybe you remember Chapter 9, verse 18, it says, Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. In other words, it takes far less to ruin something than it does to create it, right? If anyone has ever remodeled their home, it is a lot easier on demo day than it is to rebuild the whole thing, isn't it? In a foolish impulse, in a sudden lapse of judgment, something beautiful can be irreparably spoiled. There are countless examples of this verse in action, but I think, like, let's just use biblical characters so we don't make ourselves feel bad. Esau was irresponsible. Moses and Aaron, in a moment of exhaustion, smacked a rock when God did not tell them to, and then they didn't get to go into the promised land. I think of David choosing not to go to war, and in that choice, falling into sin with Bathsheba, and all of these people forfeited prizes by one single reckless moment. Solomon is starting his attack on foolishness by pointing to the reality that a little folly can do a lot of damage. He says to us this morning something very practical, and if you're young, listen to this carefully. He says, watch out for the unguarded moment, the damage caused by a hasty word, by the irritable temper, by the rudeness of manner, by the occasional slip, by the supposedly harmless thing. Why? Because these can be hugely destructive. Hugely destructive. This is not in my notes, but sometimes the Holy Spirit will prompt me to say something, and I didn't say this in the first service, but it's just on my heart. I I think of God's... um, I just want to be careful the way I say it. I think of the way that God created marriage and the purpose of marriage and sex inside of marriage and, and, and how we've tried to wreck that. And, and I think Satan would want us to believe those are harmless little things, but they're hugely destructive when we do not listen to God's word. Satan wants you to think this. It really isn't that big a deal. But a little folly destroys a lot of good, is what Solomon's saying here. Solomon goes on now in verses 2 and 3 to help us define folly. And it's really an important question for us to ask this morning. And it's this question. Am I living wisely or am I living foolishly? Am I living wisely or am I living foolishly? The next number of verses can kind of feel, I've already said this sort of today, but it sort of feels like a wall at Applebee's. Maybe you have seen this before, but... There are just a bunch of random quotes that don't make sense together, and they just make a a wall that you end up reading the whole time you're supposed to be having a conversation with your wife, whatever. That's never happened to me. Um, But Solomon is doing something here, so don't read these as if they're just random quotes. I'll try and help us explain it, but he's starting by helping us to define folly. Okay, if 
folly is bad, then what is it? How does the Bible define folly? Well, we know that a little folly can destroy much good. He's already laid his case out there. So what should I steer clear of? Well, I want to start by defining it, and then um, I'm going to look at verses 2 and 3. But before we look at those, let me say that it's vital for us to know the difference between wisdom and folly. And I kind of want to clear this up. Most Christians can distinguish between good and evil, right? We know that some things are morally right, while other things are morally wrong. So we try to do the right thing instead of the wrong things, which is good. The trouble, though, is that some of the most important choices in our lives are not between good and evil, but they're between wisdom and folly. So let's define from the Bible what a fool is, because the Bible actually has some clarity between foolishness and wickedness. To be a fool is wicked for sure. What is a biblical fool? It's it's not someone that's below average intelligence. Look at what Psalm 14.1 says, The fool says in his heart, there is no God. A biblical fool says in his heart, there is no God. The Bible tells us that the fool is impulsively disobedient, self-centered, and has a rash disregard for the holiness of God. Solomon has actually told us through the study things like this. A fool is lazy, he's ill-tempered, he's morally blind. Last week we saw in chapter 9, verse 17, that the fool refuses to take advice. His life is not pleasing to God, according to chapter 5, verse 4. And so Solomon goes now on now in chapter 10 to help us define the fool biblically. Look at verse 2, it says this. A wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. Remember, here we're defining the word fool in these verses. And Solomon starts by describing folly with a short, memorable contrast, right? He says a wise man goes to the right, but the fool goes to the left. I think it's important for us, before we really dig into this, to clear up two things right from the outset of this verse. Number one... This is not a political statement in Ecclesiastes chapter 10, verse 2, okay? I would encourage you to cancel your order if you've already created t-shirts that say this verse, okay? It's not a biblical statement. Right and left in verse 2 has nothing to do with Democrats and Republicans. I'm sorry. You can use it. It's fine. It'll just be wrong. Hear this so clearly from me, as hard as it might be for some of you to hear. The, some of the other hard things I've said, you're like, okay, the Bible's clear on that, but this might be the hardest for you to hear. God is not a Republican, and he's not a Democrat, okay? Don't walk out, just hear me out. <laughs> Molly's done. That's <laughs> <laughs> ah, fine. That's actually pretty good, only one person. Um, God is a theocrat, right? He alone rules his kingdom. And you and I could rightly say this about God. He is a benevolent dictator, as hard as that might be for you to hear. So when these verses use right and left, please don't try to make them a political deal. Secondly, if you are left-handed, I'm really sorry. (laughs) Please don't be offended by this scripture. It isn't about the way you ride or about the way you swing a golf club. But, listen to this. We should know that in Israel, during Solomon's time, 
The right hand was the place of strength, it was the place of skill, it was the place of favor and blessing. And the left hand, biblically, on the other hand, was considered a place of weakness. Also, the Bible generally treats the right side as the good side and the left side as the bad side. In Genesis 48, there's a story where Jacob actually has to cross his arms in order to bless Ephraim because of where he's standing with his right hand. The right hand did the blessing. The scriptures also associate the right hand with the authority, with authority, which is why when you read Colossians chapter 3, verse 1, it says that Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father. It is a place of authority. Matthew 25, verses 31 through 33 tell us in the final judgment, the sheep who are God's people, saved by grace, will be on the right, but the goats, the wicked, those who are not saved, will be on the left. All of this to say that when Solomon says the fool is on the left, what he's telling us is that that person is going the wrong direction in their life. Notice, though, that it isn't this mental deficiency that leads him the wrong way. Verse 2 actually says that it is his heart that leads him that way. Solomon says the heart is leaning in the wrong direction, and his point here is really about where is your heart leading you? For us, we need to make sure that we think about the heart in a biblical way. And so when we think heart, like in our context, the way we use it, generally we think emotions. But biblically, the heart is not simply the seed of our emotions and our affections and our desires. Biblically speaking, our heart is also the seed of our thinking and our willing. It's the mental, moral, and desirous focus and source for our lives. And so it is the inner man that Solomon is speaking about here. Solomon is saying the wise man's heart, his inner man, including his mind and his will and affections, lead him to the place of honor and favor and protection, whereas the fool's heart is the thing that leads him astray. And so probably the best way to sort of encapsulate this contrast in verse 2 is, is to say it this way, the wise man's heart leads him astray, or aright, I'm sorry, towards God, and the fool's heart leads him astray or away from God. And so I want to stop here because I actually think it's right for us to do this as an act of our wills. Like sometimes we want to believe that our Christian faith means we don't have to do anything, but I want to ask us some questions to sort of take a temperature of our heart because then it helps us to change. Which way is your heart leaning? Is it leaning towards God or is it leaning away from Him? Do you have a growing appetite for the Word of God or does the Bible taste stale to you? Are you moving toward or away from God in prayer? Are you getting more serious about sin or have you stopped pursuing personal sanctification? And none of these questions are me asking you, are you perfect? Understand that the leaning of the heart, it determines the direction of your life. Are you intentionally making sure that your heart is in the right place? Solomon goes on now in verse 3, continuing to define a fool for us by showing us how a fool's character shows up in his life. Look at verse 3, it says this, Even when a fool walks on the road, he lacks sense, and he says to everyone that he is a fool. Now, it's important for us to understand what Solomon is saying. I don't think it would be right for us to say that a person walks down the road and says, look at me, I'm an idiot. That's not what he's saying. He's not walking around and saying, 
Check me out, I'm foolish, but the person's words and their actions communicate foolishness so much so that everyone around them knows. He or she has an obvious lack of spiritual good sense, and because of that, their foolishness is evident to everyone. I find the Proverbs to be really helpful in helping us understand what this person looks like. Look at Proverbs 12, verse 15. It says, The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice, meaning this, Fools have a way of refusing to listen to good advice. Proverbs also say that a fool has a pattern of saying the wrong thing at the wrong time or doing something else that shouts, look at me, I'm a fool. Look at Proverbs 18.6, it says, A fool's lips walk into a fight and his mouth invites a beating. Proverbs 13 verse 16 points out the obviousness of a fool when it says this, In everything the prudent acts with knowledge... But a fool flaunts his folly. And so verse 3 of Ecclesiastes 10 is saying this, A fool is easy to spot because their lives sort of broadcast their folly. A fool fails to listen to constructive criticism, and then at the same time, they're the same person that will speak constantly and expect everyone to listen to them. We know people like this, I'm sure. We watch people like this on TV. In fact, this is what they make reality TV out of. It's fun for us to watch. They don't think of themselves as fools, but really they have announced themselves as fools so often that when they come around, the room kind of tends to clear. In verses 1 through 3, what Solomon is doing is he's helping us to define what folly is, that folly causes a lot of damage, and look, at this is what it is. Now Solomon's going to turn to this Reality of what it looks like then for us to respond to folly. If we know that it's bad and we know what it looks like, how should we respond to it? Look with me at verses 5 through 7, and then we're going to jump back to verse 4. But look at what verses 5 through 7 say of Ecclesiastes 10. It says, There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, as it were, an error proceeding from the ruler. Folly is set in many high places, and the rich sit in, low, in a low place. I have seen slaves on horses and princes walking on the ground like slaves. Here what Solomon is doing is he's he's doing what he's actually done through this whole book. He's pointing out to us that life under the sun has a lot of role reversals. They just occur. Sometimes things don't make sense. Meaning that sometimes those who work the hardest and are successful, they lose their position to less competent and qualified people. Think about how true this is in our own world. You and I can find people in very powerful positions who are foolish. And at the same time, we can find men and women with resources and wisdom, and they are hardworking, and nobody is listening to anything that they have to say. They're not in a position of leadership. They don't sit in authority. And Solomon gives us an illustration here. He says, I have seen the wrong people riding the horses and the wrong people walking in front of them. Really, it was an image that came out of his culture. In Solomon's day, only the wealthy people and the important people rode the horses. And those who were not wealthy and important, they walked. And Solomon is saying here that this situation is reversed when those filled with folly are dwelling in the high places and the wise are not. He's saying it is essentially... When folly is sitting on the throne, everything is topsy-turvy. It's not the way it's supposed to be. 
People that shouldn't be riding the horses are riding the horses, and people that shouldn't be walking are walking. It, it, it seems to me like this would be a good spot for us to stop and say something that I think is true. Whenever a society, this is true for us, whenever a society celebrates immorality, perpetuates wrongful violence, punishes righteousness, and denies the authority of God, then we can be sure of one thing, and that is that folly is in the high places. We can be sure that foolishness is sitting in the wrong spot. Here's the reality of what we have studied so far, and I think this is important. There are so many foolish people in our world, and by foolish I mean the biblical definition, people that say there is no God. We can see it. Solomon can see it. There are so many people that do not fear God. Their hearts are leading them astray, and they are leading our world and our societies and everything we're in. And we could rightly say that they fit the biblical description of a fool. And so sooner or later, maybe this hasn't happened to you, if you're not already, you will be frustrated by folly. Some of us live with fools and their behavior affects and disrupts our lives. Don't look at them right now. Some of us work with fools and their laziness or their selfishness makes us miserable. So how do we respond to them? What does God's word say? I hope it says we fight with our fists, but actually it says this. I'm just kidding. I don't hope that. Verse 4 says this. If the anger of the ruler rises against you, do not leave your place, for calmness will lay great offenses to rest. So Solomon says to us, rather than running away from tyranny or taking the law into our own hands or claiming that we have the right to be angry or saying that we do not have to obey the foolishness, Solomon recommends a calm and quiet response that turns away wrath. This, this is the biblical way to deal with fools, not by sharing in their folly, by, by living out the character of Christ. Solomon says to us, the anger of a ruler must be soothed with a calm forbearance that neither panics in fear nor deserts in bitterness. Now, before we keep going on this subject, because I think some of you are probably getting a little antsy and we might lose more than just Molly, although she came back. So it's really important for you to hear me really clearly on this. Solomon is not condoning verbal abuse. Nor is he saying that there is never a time for people in authority to put down a tyrant or for someone to walk away from a fight. He is not saying that. But here Solomon is saying that ordinarily the best response to anger is to stay, not to run away, and to remain calm and not get angry. And this is good counsel for people with an angry boss or for students with a hard and angry teacher or for spouses with angry spouses. The way to deal with foolish anger is not to be intimidated by it or to respond in kind, but to keep calm, which we can only do by the power of the Holy Spirit. Staying calm is part of God's winning strategy for dealing with foolish people. Now, this can be a really tough responsibility for us in responding to folly. Because if you're like me, you wanted God to say, and here's how you knock them down. 
We want to fight. We want to stand up for our rights. But the Bible gives advice to us in many places that says this. Trust God. Peter says this in 1 Peter 2, verses 13 through 15, to a church that, and this is important for you to know, the church in 1 Peter was being severely persecuted by its government. He didn't say, you guys should run, you guys should hide. He said this, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. These are really hard verses. But Peter continues his counsel in 1 Peter 2.21, which says this, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. Peter says, Jesus did exactly what Ecclesiastes is telling us to do. Angry angry rulers rose against him. Foolish men who treated him with angry contempt until finally they crucified him. And yet Jesus refused to leave his place of service or to fight anger with anger. Now, again, just for clarity, Jesus spoke the truth. He did not back down from what was right. But he also didn't fight anger with anger. Look at 1 Peter 2.23, it says this, When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. So Jesus did Ecclesiastes 10.4. He laid great offense to rest. How? By his calm trust in God, he said, I know God will judge them justly. And Jesus calls for us to do the same. Maybe I can ask us a couple of questions here. A lot of times we like to take this to the farthest logical conclusion and get really big and think about our government. Let me ask you smaller questions about your daily life. Who is angry or foolish in your life? How will you respond to them biblically? The way to glorify God and to lay great offense to rest is by keeping the calm of Christ. And again, importantly, this truth does not mean that you and I do not stand on truth or morality. We do share truth with people. But it does mean that we calmly entrust ourselves to the one who judges justly. Solomon goes on from these verses to verses 8 through 11, and I know some of you are freaking out, but because of time, I'm going to jump over 8 and 9 and go to 10 and 11, okay? So you're welcome. But in verses 8 and 9, Solomon, I'm just going to tell you what it means real quick, essentially tells us that every, for every folly, there is an equal and opposite reaction. So basically, he's saying, folly does not go unpunished. It will catch up with you. Now he gets to verse 10, and he tells us a wiser way for us to live. Look at verse 10 with me. It says this, if the iron is blunt and one does not sharpen the edge, he must use more strength, but wisdom helps one succeed. What does he mean here? Well, in verse 10, we can envision this guy, maybe you'll think of it with me, with an axe, okay? And he's trying to chop down a tree, but his axe is dull, it's blunt. And it provides for us a very obvious truth. If an axe is dull and its edge is unsharpened, you are going to have to beat the tree like crazy and probably to no avail. 
But if you would take some time to sharpen the axe before you begin, it will be much easier. And what the fool does is he says, well, I don't want to take the time to sharpen the axe. Just let me get it done. They keep flailing away at their work or their relationships without ever making progress, especially spiritually. It would be wiser than to sharpen the blade and slice through with a single blow. Maybe that's a pretty small tree, but it would help. Verse 10 is saying, if you want to destroy folly, take the time to prepare the blade. This principle really applies to all of us in these areas. Education, be sure to get the best training. You can't rush some stuff. It applies to relationships. Listen to this. A prudent, God-honoring dating relationship will likely lead to a more successful marriage than a whirlwind romance will. It applies to ministry. If you're interested at all in ministry, it takes time. It applies to life. Verse 11 then tells us something that seems to make nearly the opposite point of verse 10. And here in verse 11, the danger is in us acting too slowly. Look at verse 11. It says this, If the serpent bites before it is charmed, there is no advantage to the charmer. Okay, well, what does that mean? This is actually kind of a comical picture in my mind of a fool deciding to, that he's going to charm snakes, right? So he needs his flute. He's got to have a basket and all that kind of stuff. So he puts a snake in a basket, and he sets it down, and then he gets ready, and he's messing around, and he changes his outfit, and he fiddles around, and while he's looking for his flute, and while he's getting ready to charm the snake, the snake just gets tired of waiting, and it pops up out of the basket, and it bites him. It will be hard then for the snake charmer to make any money if he didn't get that snake charmed. You know what I mean? Totally relevant, isn't it? It feels like a silly point, because we're probably not carrying around axes or charming snakes, right? But here's the point. Foolish delay will come back to bite you. Taking verse 10 then and verse 11 together, what Solomon is saying is that godly wisdom requires both time to prepare and sometimes a need to act before it's too late. Wisdom really comes in knowing the difference between when it's time to slow down and prepare and when it's time to act quickly, because it's both. So what folly does is it blows ahead when it it should wait, and then folly delays excessively when it's time to proceed. The wise person is never early and never late, but is always right on time. And some of you might be asking this this morning, well, then how do I know? Well, from my wisdom, I wouldn't buy a snake. Let's start there. (laughs) But how do I know? I'm going to say this, and I think that it's important for us to hear, and especially if you're young, this message is so relevant if you're young. Some of this timely wisdom comes from life experience. For those of us with less life experience, because I'm super young, for those of us with less life experience, sometimes our best wisdom comes from asking people who are wiser than we are, and usually that means they're older than we are. I want to wrap up this morning after studying foolishness from chapter 10, as we almost always do, and that is with application. The worship team can come on up. But before we get to the application, I want to note something that I've noticed in my 41 years of life. 
before we tie a bow on this message, I want to ask you all to listen to me really carefully, especially young people. I, I think this is true. I have observed something through my years of life, and that is this. Most people turn aside from foolishness to embrace godly wisdom when they're young. And, and it does not mean that it's impossible for an old dog to learn new tricks. I'm not saying that. But most of the people that I've seen turn aside from foolishness to embrace the wisdom of God have started young. And so if you're young, don't say, I'm going to do that later. Now's the time. Today's passage implores us to turn from the folly of sin is really what it's telling us. The folly of seeing our lives without God to the wisdom of living to honor God. And I want you to hear me so clearly on this. Sin is folly. Sin is folly. And it is folly because it is disobedience to you and is a rebellion against the will of God who has made you, who loves you, who sustains you, and who will finally assess you. So what is the best way for you and I to live wise lives instead of foolish lives? How do we apply today's passage from Ecclesiastes chapter 10? Well, as simple and as churchy and as potentially Sunday school-y as this might sound, here it is. Build your life on the rock. Build your life on the rock. Jesus knew the difference between wisdom and folly. And our best way to gain true spiritual wisdom is to listen to the words of Jesus and then do them. Look at a story he told in Matthew chapter 7. It was in verses 24 through 27. And he actually said this at the end of his Sermon on the Mount. He said in verses 24 and 25, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. Look then at verses 26 and 27. The foolish man was so much less fortunate. Jesus says this, And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who builds his house or who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. Jesus was clear that there is a difference between folly and wisdom. But notice closely that the difference is really between life and death. This is really important stuff. Jesus is clear in his story about the wise and the foolish. What makes the difference, according to Jesus? He says it's hearing his words, taking them to heart, and then doing them makes the difference. More than anything else, a fool is a fool because they do not listen to Jesus and do not do what he says. If we are wise, we will build our, our lives on the solid rock of Jesus Christ and his word. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for your word. Lord, thank you again for the opportunity to be together and to study it and to worship you. Father, I, we live in this world where we're just uh, 
hit on every side from people who do not trust or believe in you. And so in that sense, there are biblical fools all around us. And so, Father, we it's so hard to stand on the rock. But, Lord, today I pray that by your power and through your spirit, we would be led to build our life on the rock, that we would be led to listen. God, for some of us, you've made it clear that there are changes that need to be made today. And Lord, I pray that by the power of your spirit, we would be able to do those. Thank you, Lord, for loving us. Thank you again for your word. In Jesus' name, amen.